Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Tez. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. I think that there is a healthy amount of paranoia. I am personally concerned about my neighbors. I'm concerned about the environment when I go out. And sometimes there is an unhealthy amount of paranoia. But you never really know, right? Because evil could be lurking right around the corner. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere where you're listening right now you can have your podcast there i promise for real and it's free and you can make some money off of your podcast for free free money free money is out there just go get it by starting your podcast today our players this week are walter satori the victim lewis wilkinson willa's son and the accomplice Dwayne lively accomplice and willa blanc our murderess. Willa Glendora Blanc was born on June 19th, 1961, and I believe she was born in Cincinnati because sources say that's where she grew up. Now, what we do know is that she did have an older brother who died when she was very young. He died when he drowned, actually, and her mother died when she was 13 years old. She had a total of three sisters and two brothers. When she was a teenager, she found out that she was pregnant with her son, Lewis Wilkinson, when she was 19 years old. She had him in 1980. To support herself and her son, Willa worked as a house cleaner. Now, according to her son, Lewis, he said that his mom was just not a good mom, that 
she was kind of a bully. Not kind of a bully. She was a bully. She would do things like, oh, you need to toughen up. She would put bugs in his food and manipulate him to do anything that she wanted him to do. If she was going out or if she was doing something, she would lock him in his room at such a young age. I was reading this thing and they were like, the first 10 years of your life are the most critical. Like if you don't experience real love, if you don't experience real nurturing, if you don't experience what a family unit is supposed to look like, that shapes the rest of your life. Those first 10 years are so, so crucial. And the first few years of his life were crucial and they were not treated with a lot of love from his mother. Now, she worked as a house cleaner, like we said, worked for different places like Two Maids and a Mop, and that is where she met her husband. So she was cleaning Paul Blanc's house, and I guess he showed an interest in her, and the two got married shortly thereafter. Now, eventually they moved in together, of course, and I heard that Willa had such a problem with gambling, money, all that stuff, that poor Paul, she basically ran his bank account dry, dry to the bone. He was supporting her habits of wanting to go to gamble, supporting her ha her habits of wanting to have nice and flashy cars and wanting to elude that she had a bigger and grander life than she did. Baby, we, we cleaning houses. We can't be driving around in the latest Mercedes if we're cleaning houses, you know what I'm saying? And one of the things is his, her husband would let her do it. He was a grown man. He didn't have any kids. She did have a child. So in his mind, he's like, I'm just supporting my wife. Eventually, Willa had a running balance at the casino. And it was up to half a million dollars that she was in debt to the casino. Paul had to default on the mortgage so that he could keep up with Willa's habits. And Willa... Now that her husband was completely tapped out, she needed to find herself a new source of income. And working and cleaning houses just wasn't going to cut the mustard. While she was cleaning houses, she saw this man, this older gentleman, a white gentleman, named Dr. Walter K. Sartori. Walter K. Sartori was born on May 17, 1935 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. As a child, he was a Boy Scout loved science and space, and when he graduated high school, he went to Carnegie Mellon University, where he eventually earned his doctorate in chemical engineering. He finished school in the early 60s and began working at Tennessee's Oak Ridge National Laboratory. This laboratory's original purpose was to create uranium for nuclear weapons. And I don't know if they're still doing that over there, but a lot of the work that he did specifically at the factory or the laboratory was classified and still is classified. But to this day, his co-workers describe him as brilliant scientist, a problem solver. And it seems like most of his classified work was still dealing with nuclear weapons. But he didn't let his work keep him too busy. He also had three patents. We found two of them. In 1976, he and John Everly received a patent for a centrifuge apparatus, which I believe allows blood to enter the centrifuge rotor, and then it's separated into three zones, plasma zones, white cell zones, and the red cell zones. The second patent created by him and five other scientists, they made a continuous flow centrifuge, which separated red blood cells, white blood cells, and plasma. Now, he was... Remarkably smart, but throughout his adulthood, he also suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. He was diagnosed sometime when he started working at the lab in Tennessee. And I don't know if him working on classified things 
attributed to the paranoia or if this was all the paranoia, but he thought that the CIA was training agents to spy on him. And he was so paranoid that they offered him a nice high-paying job and he turned them down. He was like, something's off. I don't know what you're trying to do, but no, keep it away from me. He published papers on reactor designs and the medical centrifuges that he patented. He had lots of published work. He was awarded the top award in the lab when he worked there. Like, he he was about his business when it came to this science shit. Now, he stayed at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory for 30 years and ended up retiring in 1992. Once he retired, he became a recluse and rented a tiny apartment and began investing in stock markets on Wall Street by using an algorithm that he created, which... First of all, it's hard enough creating an algorithm, but then to go and manipulate the stocks like this, he ended up being extremely successful in investments. And before the stock market crash, he had built a $14 million portfolio. He also had these computers set up in his house that would detect radio, or he says they were set up to detect radio signals from outer space because he had questions about, like, Earth and how it began, what's in the universe, what's waiting, is there aliens? And he was like, shit, I'm going to look for the answers myself. When he became diagnosed with schizophrenia, he had started therapy and eventually got on medication for it. And after a while, he began to travel, and he ended up moving to Hubron, Kentucky, in March of 2008. He didn't know anybody in the area, but... He just up and left and decided this is where he's going to live now. Yeah, and it seemed like his therapist was also encouraging him to go out because living with schizophrenia, living with constant anxiety, like he wasn't going anywhere and he wasn't doing anything except for being on the computer. And that was his main social interaction. He had friends and chat rooms on the computer, and but he wasn't actually seeing people. And so... His therapist was encouraging him to go to different conferences and go and actually meet people. Now, in mid-2008, Walter was getting a new driveway at his house. So when he was out there facilitating the new driveway, that is when Willa first saw Walter. She was cleaning a home that was nearby. And she was like, oh, you know, I can come by. I can clean your home. And Walter was like, oh, that's fine. I don't need those services, but thank you for asking. And she was just like, okay, that's fine. And she went into a neighbor's house and she cleaned their house. But every time that she would be in the neighborhood, she would come by and knock on the door. Hey, just coming to see if you might be in need of my services at all. And every time he was just like, no, no, thank you. Walter, like I said, was using these online chat rooms to socialize. And he was on these online chat rooms to meet other people that had personality disorders. His first connection was with this woman named Ann Cart in Sterlington, Virginia. And eventually they became very close. They would spend hours on the phone, chit-chatting with each other. Their relationship was very platonic, but it was nice to have a friend. It was nice to have somebody to talk to, especially somebody that was going through the same mental health struggles that you were. Anne was married and Anne and her husband both talked to Walter. They were, it was like Walter was their, I don't know, play grandpa of the family. They were on through it all the time. They became 
very close, even though they had a lot of distance between them. He also met some other people online. He met Therese Davis. Most people know her as Terry. And Terry, she was 60 years old, and she lived in New York. And in 2009, they actually got together. You know, him and Terry went on a little datey date. And Walter went to New York, visited her, spent three days with her. And she said that he was just so shy, they held hands, and even when they did hold hands, it was almost as if he had never held anybody's hand before. Like, he had extreme social anxiety, so this was a huge step for him in his older years, going out and going on a date and holding her hand. But if you ask Terry, she knew that Walter was very paranoid. Walter's work for most of his life was extremely classified, and he was under the impression that the government was constantly watching him, constantly trying to get at him. He had theories that the CIA was tampering with his vehicle, that um, when he went out to eat, he was always on pins and needles wanting to know who was tampering with his food because he just, in his mind, he knew that somebody was coming to get him. And we know, as black folks, that if the CIA wants you gone, baby, they'll do it. It was like when he would go out, of course, people would be like, oh, this old man is just so paranoid. And he was paranoid about people thinking that he was paranoid. When he went out with Terry, the waitress, he said the waitress laughed at him. He was like, oh, no, I can't eat any of this food. Like, not at all. She's laughing at the fact that I'm worried about the food. That means she probably poisoned the food and I don't have time for that. It was hard to even get him to break out of his shell to even try to have a good time, to even try to smile because he was so paranoid about everything that was going on. And honestly, if you worked in that capacity with such classified information, I think that he has a right to be a little paranoid because we know that the government don't like people to know things and it seems like he knew things. That's all I'm saying. Now, Willa, again, she would constantly come by offering her services, and he would describe Willa to his online friends. And he would say, she's a middle-aged woman, she's a black woman, she wears blonde wigs, she's got super long fingernails, she drove a candy apple red Corvette. He was just saying the interactions with her, the interactions with her are just not right. She didn't just politely wait on the doorstep and offer her services. Sometimes she would barge herself into the house and she would just stay there chit-chatting for hours, like never anything shorter than two hours. And Walter, you know, he wanted her to leave. He didn't want anybody in his house. He's already extremely paranoid. He never called the police because he's paranoid about the government. He's paranoid about this woman. I'm sure that he's telling himself, no, your therapist told you to be more social. I'm sure when he's telling his friends, his friends are like, Walter, she's probably just trying to be nice and seeing that you need somebody. And he was starting to really freak out about, you know how it is. Somebody, when that energy is wrong, everybody's like, your energy was wrong last week. But you know how it is when somebody's just like, mm, I feel like your energy is completely off. And he could feel it. But of course, since he has bouts of paranoia, people are thinking that he's just being his normal paranoid self. Which is crazy, right? In one of his emails, he said, quote, I might be merely paranoid, but I suspect she might be running some sort of racket. Or she might be casing my house, seeing if it's worth robbing. He even changed the locks in his house, and the reason he did this is because he's like, I think that she stole a copy of my house key, and I have to make sure that I can protect what I got going on here. And this is a little old, frail man. And even though he has all of these psychosis, I, I, a lot of people that are mentally ill are usually the most intelligent, and their intelligence is overlooked because they're mentally ill. 
And he's always like, no, 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 something about something in this milk ain't clean. So when he went to go see Terry, he comes back and it's snowing. And then he comes and pulls up to his house. And why does the whole neighborhood have snow on their driveways, on the wa- on the uh, sidewalks? But his house, there's no snow on the driveway. There's no snow on the sidewalks. And he is, I know that that took him into a whole tizzy. He's like, what happened? What happened? And Will's like, oh, you know, I got my son to help. I know you probably needed it. And he's like, mm-mm, I didn't ask for this help. And then it wasn't just his driveway was clear. He looks into his mailbox and his mailbox, she collected his mail. Woman, why are you touching my mail? And of course, mail means that there were bank statements. She opens up his bank statements privately. And now she knows that he is worth a lot of money. And he was trying to be kind. And he's like, oh, thank you so much for all that you did. Can I pay you or your son for your services? And she's like, no, no, no. No, wait, no need to pay us. We're, we're fine. Let me come in and sit down and chat for you a little while. He's like, I really don't want you to come in. She just budged her way in. And they're chit-chatting. And he just knows when she leaves his house. He just knows that something is not right. So here it is, it's February 14th, and Walter sends Roses up to New York to his sweetie, Terry. Listen, I don't know if you guys know this about me and Taz, but we love to work out. We go running often in the summers, we play tennis, and here it is, winter is coming, and everybody's about to say, winter is where summer bodies are built. Well, let's build them. But what is something that you need? You need to stay hydrated. That's why my folks over at Liquid IV have you covered. Liquid IV is really great because of the packaging. I can throw it in my purse. I can throw it in my gym bag. I can throw it in the cabinets and I just mix it with water. The flavors are amazing and it hydrates you so much. I mean, more electrolytes than sports drinks, three times the hydration and the flavors are amazing. I personally have the white grape and it is one of my favorite flavors across the board and liquid IV did not disappoint. Did I also mention no dairy, no gluten, no soy, and eight vitamins that you need for everyday wellness? Mm Mm-hmm. I bet you're ready to do your winter workouts for your summer body now. Grab your liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free in bulk at Costco or you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code KILL at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code KILL at liquidiv.com. So it's February 16th, maybe 17th, and Willa has gone to Walter and subdued him in whatever manner or fashion. It's unclear. The police never released that information. And she ends up driving him back to her house. When she gets there, she leads him to her basement and proceeds to duct tape him down to a chair. She has duct taped his legs, his arms to the chair, and proceeds to give him drugs. Her now 29-year-old son, Louis, lives in this basement at her house. So he comes home, and she's like, so listen, Mr. Satori, Mr. Walter Satori is downstairs, and you are in charge of taking care of him. Louis goes downstairs and he finds Walter in the basement, tied up, mouth covered with duct tape. Once he gets to the basement, Willa ends up dead bolting the door and locking them both down there. And Louis takes the tape off of Walter's mouth and Walter asks him, have the terrorists been paid? 
And then he's begging Lewis, please, please let me free. Like, but he's definitely like having his psychotic break, right? Like this is his worst nightmare come true. I knew they were after me. I knew they were spying me and watching me. And now I've been abducted. Like, pay the terrorists, do whatever you got to do to get me out of here. Please, please, please. Now, Willow would bring food down for Walter, and Lewis was responsible for spoon-feeding him since Walter remained tied up this entire time. And Lewis would notice that Walter would always throw up after being fed. Willow and her son, by force or whatnot, tortured Walter for about a week. Throughout this time, they're trying to get a hold of his finances and things like that. Willow's demanding the passwords to his computers. She's making him sign papers to grant her as his power of attorney. From there, she takes complete access of his bank and his brokerage accounts. She had him revise his will to leave, I think it was 60% of what he owned in a trust. Now, with all the throwing up that Walter was doing after every mail and whatnot, fucking with his throat and eventually he was struggling to breathe on the occasions that he did stop breathing lewis would give him mouth to mouth to resuscitate him and keep him alive he ended up having to do cpr a total of three times on him but never once called 911 lewis allegedly tried carrying walter up the stairs to get medical attention at one point but willa made him take him back downstairs to the basement somewhere around february 17th willa goes to a car dealership just a window shop trying to decide which one she was going to get when her money hit the bank so she's talking to the salesman, John, I'm going to come into a lot of money soon. And I've got my eye on a car real cute over here. She was eyeing a brand new Corvette ZR1. Apparently, Walter was in the car with her when she made this stop. And Lewis comes up to Willow while she's talking to the salesman and says, Mom, the old man wants to get out the car. And the salesman says he saw a man in the back seat wearing glasses and Willa's response was, tell him to stay in the fucking car, he'll pay for it later. The salesman says he's also had a few run-ins with Willa and her husband, Paul. He says they'd come in to look for cars and he noticed that Willis would get cars that didn't match up to what Paul seemed to be interested in. Like, Paul was usually, like, nicely, casually, nicely dressed, but Willa wanted top of the line expensive top dollar shit like this nigga wasn't wearing Versace suits or nothing he was just like a regular guy he made nice money but a working man salesman said that he could tell from the interactions that Paul and Willa had a transactional type of relationship and not really a lovey-dovey kind he also said that Willa's relationship with her son wasn't a typical mother-son relationship either and that he treated her son as a lapdog Now, the next day, February 18th, Willa has officially obtained power of attorney over all of Walter's banking and brokerage accounts. And soon after that, she starts withdrawing money. And I mean a lot of money. First, she makes a wire transfer for $10,000. Then she makes another wire transfer for $200,000. And these are coming from his main investment accounts and his personal checking accounts. Now... She tried to do a third transaction of $1.3 million, and then the bank was like, hold on, hold on, this looks a little fishy. Why is so much money leaving the bank so fast? She was also able to get into Walter's safe deposit box, which had 13 gold coins, all worth $950 each. $12,350 for 13 of them little coins. 
You know, mm-hmm. that's a pretty penny. And that's also depending on the gold price that day. Gold prices change a nice little investment. daily. I'm telling you, so gold it's February is a nice 22nd. Invest- it's really unclear how Walter died, but police suspect that he was poisoned by the food that Willa served him, which is also crazy because that was also one of his biggest fears. Walter is now deceased and Willa and Lewis, they have to figure out how they're going to get rid of this body. And she says, okay, let's load up his body into her husband's Chevy Trailblazer. They put his body into a large plastic trash bin. They tie the trash can down with bungee cords and they put like wood on top of it. So the theory is that she went from her home down to rural Indiana and she had an old gambling buddy. His name was Dwayne Lively. Now her and Dwayne, of course, they know each other very well. Before she made that trip, she had to stop at the casino real quick because I guess she was feeling very lucky with the dead man's body in her trunk. And she went to the casino, she played a few games, and she continued her trip down on to Dwayne. Now, when she's headed towards Dwayne, she ends up rear-ending and totaling the Chevy Trailblazer. Which, girl, why are girl. you not driving safely when you have a dead body in the, in the back? The police come, and they say that she was completely calm, cool, collected. Of course, the the car has insurance. Let's trade insurance companies. Let's get the car total. Let's do what we have to do and get out of here. And even though the car was total and they were going to tow the car away, she was like, how about we just tow it all the way to Kentucky to a Chevy dealership? She goes to the Chevy dealership with this totaled car in tow with the intentions of buying a very new top-of-the-line Corvette ZR1, which at the time was more than $100,000. But the salesman said, somebody already bought this car. You're going to probably have to wait a couple of days for the next car to be shipped. And she had a fit in the car dealership, y'all. I don't understand why I can't get this vehicle. I'm about to have $7.5 million dollars. I'm about to be a millionaire. I deserve to buy this for myself. This is a present to me. And they were like, I'm sorry, ma'am. I mean, you can wait a couple of days and we can ship the new car. I can't wait for a new car to come in. I need a car today. And this is the car I wanted. She did settle. She did have her fit and then settle down. And she did end up driving away with a brand new Dodge van, which she did not buy. She just rented it for a few days so that she could come back and get the vehicle that she wanted. She moved the trash can barrel with his body inside of the new Dodge van that she was renting and continued her trek on down to Indiana. Now, on the second leg of her trip, don't you worry, she stopped to play a little gambling again, but this time it was bingo. bingo. (laughs) You know, I love bingo. You know, we love bingo. (laughs) And so she she played bingo until it got dark, and then she drove an additional 40 miles so that she could finally get to Dwayne. She got to Dwayne's farmhouse, and Dwayne lives on a big plot of land. And she was like, listen, okay, so I got this neighbor that really don't like me, and I accidentally killed the neighbor's dog, and I just don't want them to trace this this neighbor's dog back to me. So I just brought him down here. Can we burn this dog 
on your property. Here's a thousand bucks. Just get rid of it. Just burn it to a crisp and we'll be good. And Dwayne was like, hell yeah. He got the same gambling problem she do. Hell yeah, I could use a thousand dollars. Instead of, I don't know, looking into the trash can, making sure that he was actually burning a dog, he just set the whole thing ablaze and told her that it would be completely taken care of. He poured gasoline on the trash can, set it on fire, and he just turned back to Willa and said, this better be a dog. Yeah, that's gonna save you from prison. It's like somebody saying, giving you weed and be like, this better not be crack. It better be marijuana. February 26, 2009, about a month after his trip to New York, that's when people started noticing Walter's not answering the phones. He's not responding to emails, and especially ones that were sent by Anne and her husband, Robert. Like, they talk on a daily. But, of course, by this time, Walter's already dead. On March 2nd of 2009, Anne calls the Boone County Sheriff's Department for them to conduct a welfare check on Walter's residence. She tells him it's been 10 days since she last heard from Walter. That's not like him. The police go out to the house, but they don't find anything wrong. Like, most of the lights are off, but without... Entering on their own, they can't see much because the shades are drawn, but they do see, like, the mail is piling up in the mailbox. So they leave a note on his door and they leave. Now, something feels a little fishy to the officer, so he goes out a couple more times just to check and make sure nothing's happened in the meantime. On March 4th, two days later, they return to check on the house, and they notice that the garage door is now unlocked. And they go inside and they see that Walter has basically turned his living room into this alien monitoring headquarters. He's got six computers, which are all running this program to track the aliens in space. They also find detailed schedules throughout the house. It's like post-its stuck everywhere. Get dressed. Brush teeth. Take a bath. All these simple things that you just do on a daily day. He's got reminders up telling him to do these things. Eat. Just everything. And you could see, like, he made, like, a checklist and would check off the task as he completed them. In his kitchen, they found that he had schizophrenia medication. And this is when the police start to get on high alert. They're like, okay, we have a schizophrenic man who has been missing. We see that his mail is piling up and his medicine is here, which means he is now off his medication, possibly unstable, could possibly go into a psychotic break. Like, we need to figure out where is this man? This is especially concerning because Anne told them that he would never leave the house without his medicine. Like, it's not like he was trying to get off or anything. He he wanted to be stabilized. And they also look in the garage and they see that a car is missing from the garage. The police talk with Anne and she's telling them Walter felt like there was a woman trying to case his house and maybe that she had a key, but just chalked it up to his schizophrenia. It's, it's paranoia, so I didn't really think much of it, but... Maybe that was actually something that really happened. So the cops are digging deeper and they're like, mm, here's something weird. We see that Walter's been paying you and your husband 2500 a month each. So a total of 5000 Maybe you were the one after his money. They checked that out for a little bit, but nothing comes up with that. You know, I wish I had a friend who would pay me 2500 a month. How I get one you of them? You know what I'm saying? But you know what? I really feel like they were they were older, but they weren't. They were adults, and they were older adults, but he was still mm. significantly older than they were. And I think that they just had that camaraderie <laughs> where he was like their grandpa versus his girl up in New York. Like, she also was wondering where he was because she got flowers from him on Valentine's Day and then didn't hear from him afterwards. Right. Like, I know you ain't it's just ghost me sense. after you bought me roses. 
Also, while the police were at the house, they realized that the mail is no longer piling up or whatever, right? So he talks to some of the other neighbors to see what they got to say about the situation. And most of them was like, don't really know Walter like that. He comes, he gets his mail, I wave, and that's about it. Nobody had seen him in a few days. Nobody had known about his whereabouts. And then one neighbor said that they seen a cleaning truck, like, um, come and clean your house. Seen a van outside of his house a couple days ago. So they tell them the name of the company that's on the van, and the police call that company, and it's like, hey, you had anybody work this house recently? They would say, yeah. Somebody told us to come and have somebody over here to pick up his mail while he was gone, check on the house, because he would be traveling indefinitely. And it was like, so who set this up? And it was like a woman named Willa Blanc. Cops are like, cool, let's go see what Willis got to say about Walter traveling indefinitely. On March 9th, the investigators locate Willa. They figure out that she lives in Union, Kentucky with her husband, Paul, and her son, Louis. And the next day, March 10th, they decide to go pay her a visit. Sheriff Chief Detective Coy Cox was the one to go to Willa's house, and Willa was not hiding. <laughs> When they get there to ask about Walter, she tells the detective she had just seen him at the grocery store on the 7th just a couple days ago. And she's like, you know what? Let me give him a call. She calls him. She said, hmm, he ain't answer. I'll let y'all know if I hear from him. And they're like, okay, she said, but I got to get Paul here to the doctor, so y'all going to have to excuse me. And the next day on March 11th, Detective Coy Cox goes back to Walter's house. And he ends up finding a letter from Fidelity Investments. So after seeing this letter, he gets a subpoena to see exactly what the documents entail. And that's when he learned, one, Walt's fucking rich. He's basically a millionaire. I think he lost some of that $14 million when the market crashed. But he held on to some money. <laughs> he, was still, he was still fine. Yeah, he was still just fine. She thought, she knew that she, she knew that she was going to have, what, $7.5 million? When because she had power of attorney, so he at least had seven and a half million. No, I don't think it was all liquid. liquid I think money. it was some stocks, but it's not. You sell the stocks, you get the cash. It's not that hard to convert it. He had a. He still at that time had a portfolio. Portfolio was going to be the investment. Seven point five so, at least. Your boy's fucking rich, and that's mm-hmm. not including what she already stole because she already <laughs> cleared out his safe box. She already. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, mama was just stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, who the fuck? Like, I wish I had <laughs> the the boldness, the tenacity, the audacity. Like, if I just was like, oh, sometimes I really be looking at my mama like, you really raised me with some morals I because if be you did it, the things so that I could do. So, the second fishy thing that they found was that Willa has added her name to Walter's brokerage account. They said, I'm going to have to go back and talk to Ms. Willa because something ain't adding up. They talked to her again, and she's like, I just seen Walt passing by in his silver Prius just about yesterday. And they was like, that's not what you told us before, ma'am. She's like, unfazed, doesn't bat an eye, can't be too bothered. What does she have to worry about? They're telling her he's missing, we need to find him. And she's like, missing? I'm sure he's fine. He's probably home now. The cops are like, okay, we still don't have much. She's not giving much. But they leave, and Willa goes home, grabs her son, packs a bag, and goes on the run. 
Now, Willa and Lewis ended up traveling to Indiana, and police were already on their trail for the most part of it, and they kind of let them leave, just let's see where she takes us type of situation. They ended up staying in three different motels, changed cars three different times, all within a two-day span. She was really trying to shake them boys. <laughs> she even got a few disposable phones and were switching between them to try and avoid being traced. At one point, the surveillance team did lose them and backed up traffic in Cincinnati, but in the meantime, Detective Cox went to interview Willa's husband, Paul. I'm sure you're wondering where Paul is in this entire equation. And apparently Paul had no idea that his wife Willa and his stepson was kidnapping and murdering a man in his basement at all. The only information that Paul could give to detectives is that Willa totaled his Chevy Trailblazer on February 22nd and that she was going to visit one of her gambling friends in Indiana and that she got into a car accident. That's really all that he knows. So the police are searching the home, and they find that Willa has this book. And the book is called How to Choose Your Prey. And she didn't just keep this book on the bookshelf. No, no, no. She had this book in a safe box. And that is why the police believe that she chose somebody like Walter. He's somebody that is a recluse. He tries to communicate with aliens and sees and is questioning with science if God is real. Like, this is somebody that is not extremely social. He doesn't have a huge family. This is the perfect person to target. With all this information, Detective Cox drives to Indiana to learn just a little bit more about the car accident. And the police that responded to the crash said that when they came up, that she was extremely calm. They didn't really think anything of it. They did notice that she had a big plastic trash barrel in the back that was tied down with bungee cords. But when they asked her about it, she said, oh, it's just firewood. And nobody checked any further because she was not acting suspicious. And the police, the detectives were like, "Mm, probably should have asked for a little bit more because I am 98% sure that Walter's body was in that trash can. When they continued to talk to Paul, Paul was like, things between me and my wife, they're not the same. I'm in extreme debt because of her. Her gambling has taken a huge toll, not only on our marriage, but on my personal life. I had a great job and Willa handled all the bills, but yeah, things stayed on, but I don't see no money. And I know I'm making money. And all my money is going to the casino. On March 13th, in Indiana, police were able to locate her gambling buddy, Dwayne. And Dwayne says, oh, I met Willa back in the casino, probably, what, 2009? We played bingo a lot together. And on February 22nd, she came to my house. She told me that she hit a dog. She told me she needed help burying it. And I was like... Sure, you can bury it in my backyard. I got all this land back here. And Willow was like, no, no, no. I don't need to bury it. I need to burn it. And he was like, you want to burn the dog? Just bury the dog. Ain't nobody going to come get a dog. She's like, listen, I'll give you $1,000. And he said, okay. And they were like, how was it burning up this trash can? And he said, it took about four or five hours to really burn it all the way down. Can you imagine just sitting there watching that burn and smelling it? Like, you could smell a hair burn and everything. Right. But was it a poodle? Did it have hair? Mm -hmm. Like, you don't know what type of dog 
As the police were leaving, Dwayne's daughter pulls up and is like, what's going on around here? And they're like, ma'am, we're here talking about Willa and the trash can. She's like, oh, that trash can with that dog in it that she had us burn, that she gave us $1,000 to do? Man, it took all night to burn that thing. And they were like, you know what? Can y'all let us know where you burned the body? She was like, it's deep in the woods, but I'm sure I can take you. And so her and Dwayne, they walked the police to where they burned this heavy air quotes, dog. They go through the ashes and they have investigators come out and the remains they found were dismembered and extremely burned and they saw bones and remains. They gathered about four to six bags of bones plus other evidence that they found. They sent the bones off for testing. Lo and behold, they were human bones. And arrest warrants were issued for Willa and Lewis. They were found with their red Corvette at a red roof inn early the next day in Sharonville, Ohio. And they were under arrest. It's March 14, 2009, and Willa and Lewis are arrested early in the morning. No issue. They went in right away. They were both charged with kidnapping, murder, knowing abuse, and neglect of an adult, knowing exploitation of an adult, tampering with physical evidence, abuse of a corpse, and theft by deception. Now, when arrested, Willa was not very cooperative. The detective started, I know that you're an intelligent woman, but I want you to understand. She said, all I know is my attorney told me don't talk to you at all. Chase is like, okay, well, I feel sad that I have to leave out of here and you don't get to tell me what happens. And she blinks, stares back at him. What she got to feel sad about? They let her call a lawyer, and she mentions to the lawyer, my son is, quote, of low mental functioning and will be unable to invoke his own right to counsel. So she asked the lawyer to represent them both. They leave Willa, they go talk to Lewis. Lewis broke down. He starts talking to the police about a lifetime of abuse and manipulation by his mother. And the detectives are like, I think she did use you, just like she's done her whole life, from the day you were born to this very day. This is this may be your first opportunity in your whole life to say, this is about me this time. And poor Lewis over there crying, I had no control. I'm just a weak person. He said, I need help. And he's sobbing, he's sobbing. He says, she knows I need psychiatric help. I need help. I wasn't strong enough. I apologize to the family. I need help. They said, you're okay, Lewis. You're okay. He said, she's bad. She's bad. She's bad. They said, what did you do? So, you know, Lewis starts to calm down a little bit. And he starts to tell detectives about when he first found Walter in the basement. He said, I was panicking and I was shaking, trying to figure out what the heck's going on here. He tells the detectives that his mom told him it was his job to take care of Walter. And she locked the door. He says, I took him and I asked him, Mr. Satoy, are you okay? Are you all right? Do you need anything? You need help? And he said he's okay, but... Are they after him or some something to that nature? Lewis goes on to tell the detectives, you know, his mom would bring down food and it, he would feed it to him and then he would throw up. And the cops are like, hmm, sounds like poisoning. And Lewis said, I said he needs medical attention. And she said she would give him what he needs. And the detective said, did you believe her? He said, at that point, my, my mind has snapped. And so the detective said, when did he die? He says, that... That's something she knows. He's like, I can't tell you. The cops asked Lewis, was Paul involved in any way? Lewis said, I don't think Paul knew a damn thing was going on. I think she had him. She's so wrapped around her damn finger. Yeah, he said that that man was blind. Actually, 
all the men in her life or anybody who cared about her. They all been fooled. He goes on to say, quote, his mother was controlling his life and he was being, quote, her slave. And that's about as far as they got before Will invoked the lawyer on his behalf. Willow was held on a $10 million bond. Two sources say that was $4 million. So between 10 and $4 million, regardless, she ain't got it. And Lewis was held on a $1 million bond. The cops executed several search warrants leading up to the trial. In Willow's house, they find a book, How to Choose Your Next Prey. And in the car, they find a picture of Walter, his statements from Fidelity, and a black semi-automatic handgun. They called the banks, and apparently she used a stand-in. They described a frail old man in his 70s with an oxygen mask and an oxygen tank who posed as Walter in order to get the power of attorney signed and access to his money. Now, on April 13th of 2009, forensics confirms that the remains that they found in the woods were, in fact, Walter's. On May 12th, Willa and Lewis were indicted on multiple charges, including kidnapping, murder, theft by deception, tampering with evidence, and a bunch of charges related to the finance stuff, including exploitation of adult. The Bowdoin County Circuit Judge Anthony W. Froelich scheduled a hearing to determine if Lewis was competent enough to stand trial, but it was rescheduled for a later date, and his lawyers were trying to throw out his confessions in hopes that he wouldn't be put on trial. They both pleaded not guilty originally, but they... But as they both spent time in jail, Willa was also supposed to have a hearing to determine if she was fit to stand trial in January of 2010. Trial was set to start January of 2012, which is three years after the murder. And under state law, kidnapping a person and them dying as a result holds the same weight as capital murder. It was very possible that Willa was going to receive the death sentence if she went to trial. And the state wanted the death penalty for Willa, and they were unsure of what Lewis's punishment should be, but they knew what they wanted for Willa. The state wasn't completely sold on the fact that Lewis was low mentally functioning, and the defense said that they had proof that Lewis was highly intelligent and that he was very well-spoken. After they sat in jail for some time and they were getting ready for the trial, Willa decided that, you know what, I'm gonna go ahead and plead guilty. She went to her plea hearing. She was wearing Versace glasses, which <laughs> I'm sure we know who paid for those. And they weren't even her. cute. It's not like she has a fly-ass glasses. And she decided, ugly. yeah. with that, she pled guilty to kidnapping abuse of a corpse, and exploitation of an adult. When it's all said and done, the motive behind the murder is believed to just be straight up greed. The state said that Willa had a taste for expensive jewelry and that she had a gambling habit. And they said that most of the money that she stole from him was already spent by the time that they caught her. She was mostly gambling she was mostly buying cars, and she spent a lot of that money on that trip to dispose of Walter's body. How you blow through that type yeah. of—I mean, I guess she never got the millions yet, but the money that she did have, she blew through that. In January of 2012, Willa walks into her sentencing hearing with a smile on her face. She signals towards her family in the crowd. A judge asks her her name. She says, she says, Willa, whatever her middle name is, Blanc. Glendora. Blanc. He says— and where do you currently live? And she smirks and says, Boone County Jail. <laughs> Willa got 10 years for the abuse of an adult, another 10 years for exploitation of an adult, and several other charges all set to run concurrently. For the kidnapping resulting in death, she received life in prison without the possibility of parole. On September, in September of 2012, Lewis 
was sentenced to 30 years and he will be eligible for parole in 2029 and he'll be 47 years old. Now, the only person who knew Walter that was present at the sentencing was Elizabeth Clarney. She met Walter online 16 years before his passing and said that he deserved some representation. She had never even met him in person. They only talked online. And she was the one who started the Prodigy Bulletin Board because her father suffered from schizophrenia and she wanted a place for people like him and family members like them to connect. Five members of Willa's family showed up and were present for her. And one of her nieces was interviewed outside the courtroom after the sentencing, saying that her aunt Willa was a very nice person and she was loving. And right or wrong, she took responsibilities for her actions and she did it with pride and I'm proud of her. The interviewer then asked her if her heart hurt for the victim and she said, I don't know the victim, sir. She said, I mean, I have empathy for his family, but at the end of the day, I got to stay loyal to my family, and that's my auntie. Now, remember Miss Terry in New York, his, his love, his little boo thing? She had no idea what was happening to him until they found his body and somebody finally informed her. And the last thing that she received from him were those Valentine's Day flowers. And she said, quote, the flowers were so beautiful. I tried calling him and I tried calling him and calling him. And then finally I heard the news and all I could do was cry. I just cried. I cried and I cried. Because I definitely would have felt ghosted. Yeah. Like, what's yeah. happening? You didn't buy me flowers and then disappear. Like this little piece of shit ass nigga. Girl, you know I would have been. Now, the remainders of Walter's estate went to friends and organizations that were specified in his will. Walter's estate filed suit against the bank, Fifth Third Bank, that gave Willa access to his safe deposit box. And they also brought a suit against Fidelity Investments, saying that they should have known that the documents were forged. Dwayne, lively, he was never charged. Willa is currently serving her life sentence in the Kentucky Correctional Institute for Women, and Lewis is eligible for parole in 2029. He will then be 47 years old. And this is the story of Willa Blanca. All right, y'all, it's time for... Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I ain't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. I ain't do it, but if I did, I think I already said this. If you are transporting a body in a vehicle, do everything that you can to make sure that that vehicle stays in one piece. Don't get into any car accidents. Don't speed. Don't run any stop signs. You are transporting a dead body. I ain't do it, but if I did... I understand you needed land to burn the body, but involving another man. And I guess at first he believed it was a dog and didn't know. But, like, girl, you really, y'all got to stop involving other people because you know what he said? <laughs> she did it. This where it happened. I ain't got shit to do with it. It's a snitch. And, I'll, and mm -hmm. his daughter was like, and I'll show you where we did it. I ain't rapping my daddy in this shit. I didn't do it, but if I did, it seemed like he, his post-it notes were everywhere, and most of his information was on those post-it notes. Like, he had to constantly remind himself. You probably could have found his bank statements and his passwords without actually torturing him. Old folks be writing stuff down now. 
But he also was paranoid, so maybe he had a system. <laughs> like, I think I think it's just what he needed to do to get by. Because, like, he might have found himself 3 o'clock answering the door with his dick out. Like, ah, oh, fuck, I didn't get dressed. Whatever works. It's just crazy how, like, this man barely left his house. He didn't do nothing to nobody. I just think it's so sad. Like, he always thought somebody was out to get him, and then somebody got him. Like, and everybody telling this man, it's okay, are you taking your meds today? It's like, calm down, everything's fine, everything's not fine. And he kept saying that, everything is not fine, they are trying to get me. And lo and behold, they were trying to get him. I ain't do it, but if I did, girl, you need to, I would have divorced my current husband after you done bled him dry. You probably didn't have a prenup, so even though he was bled dry, all of his other money would have gone to you in a settlement and then found you another husband to bleed dry. You could have still finessed these niggas without murder. But I guess who was also going to take care of your grown son in the basement? Uh, I ain't do it, but if I did, I think she should have maybe, like, let him die slowly. Let him slowly lose communication. Like, he's, she's got the schizophrenic thing going for her. So he can say these things are happening, and it's just like, oh, you're going crazy. Let him die slowly and slowly transfer that shit out. Like, girl, a $1.3 transfer? We're raising fucking flags. You could have got yourself a nice stipend, probably like that 5000 he was giving him, maybe even ten. you know? Every month and kept that Every shit month. going. And then you've changed yep. his trust. Nobody even knows till he dies. Parole okay. or no parole? She can stay there. And I think her son is good for parole. Yeah, I think that he is as well. Let's let him spend his time. He clearly had a rough upbringing with her being his mother. Cool. That's the end of the show. No, you can do the rev. You can do the bad review if you want to read it. Leave us a re review. You can. I prefer the bad reviews via, via email, or you can put it in the discussion group so that we can all talk about it and rave about it and talk shit and go back and forth and say the same things over and over again. You can do that, okay? You can. But if you care about us in any way, shape, or form. Please leave us a positive review wherever you are listening. This one says, just the facts, please. It's so hard for me to sit through this podcast sometimes because they go off on so many tangents when all I want to hear are the stories. They also give too many opinions and do too much speculation. I would love to have just the facts. I think they should have a separate podcast to talk about their friendship and personal information. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. Me and Tazzy both have ADHD, and this is definitely podcast for people with ADHD, people that don't really do podcasts because their mind goes in different tangents because that's what we do. There are plenty of true crime podcasts that just give that to you and I encourage you to go find them. But as for me and my house, yeah, we're going to do what we want to do. <laughs> you could just turn it off. You can suggest it to your friend that, that always goes on tangents. They'll probably like us. It ain't for it's everybody. Okay. We're not everybody's cup of tea. Listen, some some week it ain't for me. This one says, repeat offender, I mean listener. This is from Scorpio Queen. Scorpio Queen says, I've been listening to this podcast for a while now. Since Mariah used to tell us how the price of eggs was astronomical. I'm also a member of the discussion group on Facebook, and y'all definitely need to join because we be cutting up in there. Just come in with some respect and manners, speak to everyone, and leave the mess at the door. I tune in every week to hear both Taz and Mara. Quote, everyone be putting Mara name first. Taz, I put on my Scorpio queen first. 
Yeah. I think it's just alphabetical. I think that's all that is. But okay. But she had to put her Scorpio queen first. They tell these stories like no one else could. Please keep them coming and don't let these people bully y'all into more episodes a week. Stay black and stay blessed. Thank you, girl. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Taz, you, you creeping it's up a on knocking. It's knocking. It's ringing the doorbell. It's peeking through the windows. Knock, knock, knocking at your door. Knock, knock, knocking at your door. Lord, it's knock, knock, knocking at your door. Peeking through the windows trying to see if I'm and home. Let him in. It's there. All right. Very much. If you want to keep up with us, you can. It's not quite Scorpio season yet, so everybody relax. Relax. Calm down. You can follow us on Twitter, Sisters Who Kill, on TikTok, Sisters Who Kill Podcast, on Instagram, Sisters Who Kill Pod, on Facebook, Sisters Who Kill Podcast, and then there's that private Facebook discussion group, Sisters Who Kill Podcast discussion group. There's questions you have to answer to get in. You are allowed to give your opinions. No one really cares. You are allowed to have your own opinions. And guess what? They can be different from me and Taz's. That is the point of a discussion. But if you show your ass, I will show mine. Anything else? Talk to us. We talk back. Bye. Should say talk shit, get hit. (laughs) Bye, y'all.